Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Lord God, would you open our hearts to your word? We don't want to be entertained. We don't want information for its own sake. Lord, we ask that you would speak deep to us, that your word would build us up and challenge us as as the prophetic word was earlier. We're not looking to be safe. We're looking to be beautiful. Come, Holy Spirit, work deeply in each one of us. Grace me to speak your word and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to Acts chapter 13, and I'm looking only at, at uh, three verses, Acts 13, and I'll, I'll start at verse 4. You know that the church in Antioch has, is, is, becomes the, the sending church. The, really, the focus of God, it certainly with respect to the outreach to the Gentiles, moves from Jerusalem to Antioch. This becomes the sending church. From there, the missionaries began to be sent out around the world to reach the nations. And so they've had a prayer meeting, and God has indicated to send out Barnabas and Saul for the work to which he's called them, and that was this this evangelistic mission. They're about to go on their first missionary journey, it's called. Verse 4, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis... They began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Now you say, where's Mark? What's John's full name? John Mark, Mark, correct. Yeah. So this is John Mark, and I noted this young man grew up in the house where the upper room was. That's his mom's house. It's not out of the question that he was the guy with the water jar on his head that the disciples followed to his house to decide where they would have the Last Supper. This is John Mark. And notice he's now being brought along. He's a young man. How young, I don't know, but pretty young at this point still, I believe. He's, he's a very young man. And then now you have uh, them all, three of them, Barnabas, Saul, and or now he'll soon be called Paul. Barnabas, Paul, and and John Mark will go through the island of Cyprus, out the other side, and land north on the southern coast of Asia Minor. And then this happens, verse 13. Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, that's the port on the the west side of, of Cyprus, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. See that? Pamphylia is this um, kind of alluvial plain. The Taurus Mountains go along that whole, what's Turkey, we call it Asia Minor, today it's Turkey. And there's the Taurus Mountains go along that. They're very rugged mountains all along the coast. And right in this area, there's an alluvial plain. It just kind of goes out there. And there's mountains behind it, an ocean on the other side of it, and a river that goes through it. And this is Pamphylia, just directly north there of, of Cyprus. They get in a boat and sail directly to this shore of of Pamphylia. And then they're going to head through the mountains. 
let's look at my text and I'll take you further in that story. As Paul and Barnabas set out from Antioch on their mission, Luke briefly mentions they also had John Mark as their helper. He didn't last long. No sooner did they leave the island of Cyprus and head toward the interior of Asia Minor than John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Notice he didn't go back to Antioch. That'd be awkward. They're going to go, what are you doing here? (laughs) And, And so he went home. He went back to Jerusalem. And uh, they probably didn't know where he'd been. The reason for this isn't stated, but it's some sort of failure because Paul's confidence in him was shaken. And he wouldn't allow him to accompany them on the next trip. Yet this certainly wasn't the end of Mark's development into a minister of God. He kept on learning and growing. Barnabas, of course, didn't give up on him. You'd know that, huh? When Paul refused... Barnabas changed his own plans and took Mark with him to Cyprus, where they probably revisited the believers they had led to Christ on the first mission. The point is, all young disciples make mistakes, as do older disciples. Now listen, but the danger is greater for the young that they will be categorized as failures and cast aside. Did you follow? Everybody makes mistakes, but when young do it, they can end up categorized as failures and cast aside. Someone, someone older, needs to believe in them, to pick them up, dust them off, and encourage them to keep growing. And most will if they're cared for. The father hand of God and the passing of time will do the rest. And then they will rise to a level beyond what anyone thought possible. Take Mark, for example. Here in Acts, he looks like such a failure. But that's not the end of his story. Of all people, Paul, as he sits in Nero's prison in Rome, awaiting his trial that would bring a death sentence, writes to Timothy, another young disciple who struggled with courage issues. And he said this, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's very helpful to me for ministry. Clearly, Mark had regained Paul's respect and earned his trust. Oh, and there's one more thing we should mention. Mark wrote the first gospel, which provided a foundation for Luke and Matthew to write theirs. Do you know that? That Mark's gospel is the first gospel by everybody's study. By the way, when you research this kind of thing, Mark wrote the first one. Luke and Matthew use Mark as their template, and then they add information and materials they also found and had. They bring other stuff to it. They add on to it. But Mark is the, is, the, is, the, is the template. He wrote the first one, this Mark of ours. For Luke and Matthew to write theirs. In other words, the kid who lost his nerve, and I'll explain why in a second, who lost his nerve at Perga, went on to strengthen for all time the entire church of Jesus Christ. Somebody say thanks, Mark. Perga was the main city for the region of Pamphylia, located seven miles inland along the Cestus River. Yet Paul and Barnabas passed through without stopping to preach there. Apparently, they were in a hurry to reach Pisidian Antioch. The weather may have played a part in their decision. Depending on the time of the year, the mountain passes could be blocked by snow. We know that they considered the city worthy of an evangelistic effort because they preached there on their return trip home. 
The journey from Perga to Pisidian Antioch, by the way, it's 100 miles. From, from Perga, you'll very shortly, you'll hit the mountains, and then you go up into the mountains, and you're in the mountains for most of the 100 miles. This is you're going way up into central, what's today Turkey, Central Asia Minor, through rugged mountains. Listen to this. Here's, uh, it, the, the, the journey from Perga to Pisidian Antioch was both difficult and dangerous. Here's how one commentator described it, quote, it was a long and rugged journey, and lying as it did almost through entirely rugged mountain passes, while rivers burst out at the bases of huge cliffs, or dash wildly down through narrow ravines, it must have been a perilous one. The whole region was, and to this day, and this was written in the 1800s, and to this day is infested by robbers as ancient history and modern travels abundantly attest. So there they sit in Perga, and they're headed a hundred miles through this rugged mountain passes and these narrow trails with, with all of this and robbers the whole way along. It's notorious. And yeah, Mark loses his nerve, I think. He just sort of says, I, I'm going home. <laughs> you guys, I don't have it. I just, I'm sorry. I just can't do this. Tuesday. In his comments on this passage, David Brown went on to note that when Paul later referred to dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, remember this in 2 Corinthians, where he's listing all the stuff he suffered? It's likely he was thinking of this journey. The prospect of these dangers may have influenced Mark's decision to get on a boat and sail home. Let's turn to Malachi. This is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi, the last chapter. Malachi, in fact, I'm looking at the last verse in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Would you say a heart for the young? The final words of the Old Testament end with a remarkable promise. The passage predicts the coming of a second Elijah who would prepare for the coming of the Lord by healing the separation between older and younger. Let's read it. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. First, let's recognize the problem. There is a loveless indifference by the older generation toward the younger and also by the younger generation toward the older, isn't there? That's what it, that's what it pictures, a separation, a, a divorce, where you have older and you have younger and, and they just don't like each other. They don't love each other or work together. And the most awful result is that faith isn't being passed on. The young are not being taught and trained to walk in God's ways. And therefore, they will inevitably sin and fall under judgment. And that affects everyone, young and old. Because, quote, all the land will be smitten with a curse. If we fail to reach the young, we all go along for the ride. Do you believe that? If we fail to reach the young, we all go along for the ride. I've mentioned this before, but it just still touches me powerfully. Was it last year um, when we were, uh, Mary and I went to uh, 
Holland uh, and, and also to South Africa. Um, and we spoke there. And one of the churches that uh, we were invited to come and, and visit was, um, it's called Raphael uh, Amerfort. Amerfort is a, is a town somewhere in the middle. I, I, I mean, I was there, I, but I can't tell you exactly how I got there. But it's somewhere in the middle of Holland. And um, the church there is very, um, very contemporary. They, I mean, the, the, the service there was very similar to what you've just been through. And they were dedicating that day that we were there. That's what we were invited for. The, the, the president of that, um, of what's called, a four-square church is called Raphael in, 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 in Holland. And um, by the way, he is a friend of mine. I just love this guy. And one of these days, he's coming to study here in Seattle. He's going to stay with us, and I'll have him speak to you, and you'll get to meet him. He and his wife, Pete and Reek. Uh, they're just delightful. Anyway, so we're at this dedication. It's a e Sunday evening service, and it's dedicating a new 900-seat auditorium. I mean, tasteful and cool. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you think our foyer is cool. You ought to see their foyer. And, and all the stuff they had and, and all of this. And the place was packed. I've told you this story other times about the Lord Mayor. He was there, and that was a fun experience, watching a fellow who was pretty resistant to Christianity get into it. Uh, he did, too. Hands up, the whole nine yards. The guy got going. Um, and uh, the worship team uh, was all young. They were good. I mean, we had all kinds of instruments. It was, it was hazed. I mean, you know what the hazing, the, the steam? Yeah, I mean, we had that. Come on. Uh, and that place just, just worshipped its heart out. I'll tell you one thing that really moved me. We're sitting over here and uh, kind of off to the, from the stage to the, to the left side and back a number of rows. And an older couple. This, it was mixed. The congregation was, very, was mixed. We had, we had young and there was old. Everybody was there. And I'm, Mary and I are sitting next to an older, older couple, a very distinguished couple. And... You know, he said hello to me. He was sitting directly next to me and, uh, you know, recognized that we were, we were Americans and clearly didn't know Dutch. And, and so he kindly, without being asked, just put, kind of put his arm around me a little bit and leaned over and interpreted for me the entire evening. And for me and Mary. So we heard everything. It was phenomenal. This older gentleman, beautiful uh, frankly, woven silk coat, tie. I mean, he's, he was cool. He was. He was. And, but just not without a blink. No, no big deal. Just leaned over and kindly interpreted the whole service for us the entire time. After service, I mean, I, I was moved by this. I thought, oh, this was fabulous, you know. I mean, it was powerful service. Um, pastor's about my age, forgive me. So, but, but he was cool. That's the only difference. He was, he was. He was cool and he was my age. Hallelujah. You can, you can do it. Um, and afterwards, I'm hanging around and talking to some of the band because I'm going, oh, you guys are awesome. I mean, you know, and, and I, t I ended up talking to the, the young lady who led worship, her husband. I didn't know that at the time. Her husband. And he's talking to me about the church. And one of the things he said was very touching. He says, we've had a struggle here between the older generation and the younger generation. 
for a long time. And he said, it's, it's, it's hurt us. He said, but recently, in the last half year, I think it was, he said, there's been a turn. And he said, we've come together. And he said, our, our, greatest, our greatest cheerleaders, our, our greatest support are the older generation. They love us. And he beamed. He said, he just beamed. And you could feel it in the room. Those older people were so proud of those young people up there, they could burst. And those old young people were so in love with the older generation. It was deeply moving. Obviously, I'm sorry. But it was deeply moving. It still, still just marks me as I listened to that young man. And I sat there, watched this old man proudly interpreting all that was going on for me. Clearly, God had done a work. He had turned the hearts of the fathers and mothers back to their children. And the hearts of the children back to the fathers and mothers. Do you see that? The softest soil. Matthew 18. That's where we're going now. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. Jesus explains something remarkable. When Adam and Eve fell, they damaged all of their children. All of us are born into the world alone, separated from the glory of God in which we were created to dwell. I think that's the, one of the greatest problems we face. When Adam and Eve were created, they, I believe, were surrounded in the Shekinah glory of God. They lived in it. Which is why when they sinned, they suddenly noticed they were naked. I mean, really, come on, that's an odd statement, isn't it? Whoa, you haven't any clothes on. Why didn't you notice? I think they were literally in the Shekinah glory of God. And with the sin, that lifted. And all of us are born into this world, you might say, naked, without the glory and with which we were to be clothed. This leaves us hopelessly controlled by the influence of our flesh. Yet there is still a softness in, the ch- in children toward God that tends to evaporate with the passing years if that child is not brought into relationship with him. Did you follow where I just said? All right, we all come in, we've all got sin, we've, but we've all got particularly, it's more what we don't have. We don't have him. It leaves us hopelessly controlled, yet there is still a softness in children toward God that tends to evaporate with the passing of years if that child is not brought into relationship with him. Living in this world tends to harden everybody. We do things and things are done to us that produce bitterness and shame. Without God, we grow less and less receptive to God and more cynical the older we get. In God's mind, no one ever becomes so hard he cannot reach them. But when people are young, the heart is naturally softer and the seed of God's word is more easily planted there. Now read what, what Jesus spoke. Matthew 18, 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And he's called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, say become like children. Yeah. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name as a Christian receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. One of the interesting things we see when we go to Israel in Capernaum, they have a millstone there that is what's called in situ. In other words, they found it there and, it's, and it's, it goes clear back to Jesus' time. It may be the millstone he's got in his mind. It's, there's this big, big uh, stone thing with a trough in it and then this big millstone on it and you would have pushed and crushed all of the, the olives. There's olive groves all around uh, Capernaum. And so that millstone, I'm going to tell you, you do not want it around your neck. And to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Let's look back at our text. Children don't have to become like adults to be saved. Adults have to become like children. Did you hear it? Children don't have to become like adults to be saved. Adults have to become like children. Children can certainly be stubborn and selfish. But they're still teachable, moldable, like soft clay. They tend to believe what they're taught, which can be wonderful if they're taught the truth, but tragic if they're taught lies. Jesus' warning about the millstone is telling us how severe the judgment will be for someone who turns a tender heart away from him. If we understand what Jesus is saying, we'll realize that a person's young years is the season in which they are naturally the most responsive to God's call. And the memories that go into that child are the longest lasting. Let's test it. How many of you can remember your elementary school teachers? How about, how about uh, third grade? Fourth grade? Fifth grade? How many can remember who won the Super Bowl last year? Yeah. I'm impressed that some of you can. I can't remember who played. Anyway. What you're looking at is, what's, is, is your long-term memory. And if you deal with the elderly, they can't tell you what day it is off when you get old enough. They can't tell you what day it is. They're not sure who you are. But they can, they can remember all sorts of things from their childhood. The things that go into a child's mind are the things that will be there when they're 95. Did you hear that? It's just, that's just, just truth. This is just biology. The things that are put in the child's mind are the things that will be there when they're 95 years old. Moving forward. So how does God want us to respond to these truths? What are we to do? I believe he's calling us as an entire church to refresh our commitment to children and youth. This is not to say that there aren't people who are already serving faithfully and powerfully in these fields. Many are, to whom we all say a sincere thank you. 
but many more are needed. How many of you are teachers, youth ministers, you, you serve, whether in the church or in the, in the public school system or wherever it is, but you are involved in serving children as, as a teacher? Raise your hand. Let's say thank you to them, church. Bless your hearts. Thank you so much. Praise God. Thank you. God recently spoke prophetically, telling us that we are to refresh our vision. He said our congregation will be most effective in reaching our community by ministering to children and youth. He said this is a key. All parents, no matter how troubled a family may be, long for their children to do well. Most want their children to know God and intuitively understand the enormous, and, and they intuitively understand the enormous potential God has put in their child. Listen, I don't care how broken. You know, we often say, oh, well, their, their parents are, you know, this situation, or uh, their mom's in jail. When, when we were in Arizona, the Lord began through one of the women of the church, a very powerful prison ministry. And we began at the Arizona Women's Correctional Facility in Phoenix. That was the very place. I remember having the, I got FBI checks and everything else. Went into the, to a, to a maximum security prison, walking right through the yard, you know, and gotten fingerprinted and the FBI stuff and woo-ha. Uh, all I did was play in the band. I'm just the band, you know. Um, because we weren't allowed to say word one to the women. But Mary and, and, and Jenny Norton and, and other women, they were the ministers. So me and a couple of other guys, we played the music and they did the rest. I'll tell you one of the things that you see when you really get into that situation. You got all kinds of moms in prison. And I'll tell you one of the major concerns of those moms. What do you think it is? You bet it is. They may be addicted like crazy. They may have committed a felony and they are worried sick about their children. Yes, we've got all kinds of social breakdown. Yes, people are in all kinds of trouble. I don't care what they are. And dads too. I had a young guy talk to me. He came across the street one Time. I think it was last year at the harvest party. I don't know, something. He just walked in and I was talking to him about the Lord. This young man was, he said, my mom told me I need to come over here. And, and, and uh, he did uh, need to come over here. Uh, but he had, he had uh, children by three different, uh, what he called baby mothers, I think, or something like that. Baby moms, okay. That was new to me. I mean, I understood the process, but it was new to me that there was, you know. And, but I'm going to tell you one of the things he said to me. He said, but I take care of all my children. He said, I provide for everyone. There was an ethic to it. There was an ethic. No, he wasn't married. To, I don't think he was married to any of them. But in that, he cared for his children. There's something... God puts in the heart. There's something that's just in there. You care about your children. 
oh, I know there's psychotics and everything else. There's a, but come on, there are not many of them. They all go somewhere else to another church. They don't go to church. Only healthy people go to church. We know that. So anyway, well, what I'm telling you is the community, you, you can't look at a situation and say, well, it's broken. Those are mothers and fathers. And those are their children. And they long for those children to be established. Even if, especially if they're not. They know the condition they're in. They know where they've come to. There's, that's, that's terrible. But they desperately want their children not to go the same path. Most want their children to know God and intuitively understand the enormous potential God has put in their child. As a parent, isn't it the most interesting thing? You look at that child and you can see the intelligence, you can see the gifting, you can see the orientations of the child. And one of the most frustrating things in the world is when you, when a, if a child's not going, developing like that, you're just so frustrated, but you want your child to be all that young lady, all that young man can be. I don't know how many moms I've heard say, I don't know what's wrong with him. He tests off the charts. You heard that phrase? Yes, you have. What she's saying is, I, this is a smart kid. I don't know what's wrong with him. I don't know why we're doing what we're doing, but he's got potential all over the place. Because she sees it. She sees it. She knows it's there. It's not something she's making up. And if someone will help their child reach that potential, they will be forever grateful. You want to win a parent's heart? Help their child. They'll love you forever. That's where we come in. We can introduce their child to a loving Heavenly Father. We can teach that child the truths of God's word that will bring true success. This is what God is calling us to do at a new level. Do you hear? How many of you, what's your favorite movie about teachers? You know, you know the ones I'm talking about? I haven't seen a lot of them, but I've seen some. Stand and Deliver, that one. Is that too old? You don't know what that one is? Okay. Somebody help me. What is some of the new ones? Because there's always some of these where there's some guy goes into the, some rugged school, some broken situation. Remember the principals and they put chains on the doors and walk around with a ball bat and that kind of stuff? What's that? I can't hear. Yes, and I, what is the name? Say it again. Mr. Mr. Holland and Opus. How many have seen those? Isn't there something in all of that that sort of fires you up? There's something beautiful about it, isn't it? You, you walk into a, a school full of children who are probably on, doomed to, to nothing but trouble. And somebody has a vision for those kids and believes in them. And won't put up with the, dis, uh, the lack of teaching. And won't put up with the, sl- the, the lack of discipline. Absolutely takes control. And what happens? You watch children who were on their way to trouble, sometimes become what? College 
graduates and doctors. Ron Walker's running around with a book that talks about these three guys out of the ghetto and the whole thing. Just said, we're, we're not going to put up with it. They all became, every one of them, all three of them became doctors, medical doctors. They, it's a great book. I forget the title. I got it at home. Ask Ron. He'll give you one, probably. No. <laughs> I said that. He didn't. Okay. But what are we seeing? We're looking at the potential. We're looking at what's there. And then we're seeing somebody believe in it. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.